Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 136 and we're back in the Northern Cape with General Jan Smuts. He's been waiting in vain for more than two weeks for the British to send a relief force after he laid siege to the well-defended town of Akeep, having seized Springbok and Concordia. Meanwhile, the first round of peace talks have already ended in Pretoria, with the Boers undertaking to select representatives to appear at follow-up talks set to take place at Vereniging starting May 15th. General Smuts has no idea that this meeting has already been agreed upon. As far as he's concerned, the British will send a relief column by ship from Cape Town to Port Nolith, then in train from there to Okeep, which is a copper-producing town of some significance. Compared to Kimberley and Johannesburg, it's hardly strategic, but important nonetheless. And with him is our young narrator, Denise Rates, fighting on with the other bitter enders. On the surface, things look prosperous, he writes in his book, Commander. Five months ago, we had come into this western country hunted like outlaws, and today we practically held a whole area from the Olifants to the Orange River, 400 miles away. Except, of course, for a few garrison towns, which had held out against smuts. These were now hunkered down, and the British inside the towns were unable to travel freely while the Boers roamed this vast territory at will. The success of Smuts's commander was gratifying for the folk back home in the Free State and Transvaal, as well as sympathisers in the Cape. Their spirits had been raised as reports circulated about General Smuts's incredible attacks using hand grenades and trench-type warfare at Springbok and Concordia. Unfortunately, while matters stood thus well with us, the situation in the two republics up north was far otherwise. Lord Kitchener's drives and policy for scorched earth had worked in the end. Smuts had been out of touch from his own leaders since the previous September. That was almost nine months of no direct messages. Even guerrilla leaders must be in communication at some point, or the entire idea of command and control evaporates in a mist of local delusion. We'd been out of touch with them for so long that we did not realize the desperate straits to which they had come. Rates, along with Smuts, had been trying to motivate the men, while at the same time realized that this war could not continue forever. Something had to give. So towards the end of April, Smuts and his men were living in the town of Concordia, which lies around four miles from Okeep. The British there were dug in and their defensive positions were too difficult to overrun. Smuts had assumed that eventually the relief force would arrive, and it would be large. This, he believed, would mean the southern region of the Cape would have been weakened, and then he could make a direct dash south and perhaps catch the British off guard. Rates presumed the dash included a possible attack. Cape Town. Towards the end of April 1902, I rode out one afternoon with Dunker and Nicholas Swart to snipe at the English posts on the other side of O'Keep, he said. And as we were returning to our horses, we saw a cart coming along the road from the south with a white flag waving over the hood. They galloped up to the cart and found two British officers inside who said they had an important dispatch for General Smuts from Lord Kitchener. We took them to Concordia, our pickets amongst the hills, riding down from all sides to hear what it was about. The officers pretended they didn't know the contents of the letter, but Rates felt uneasy. What terms were they offering and why did Lord Kitchener want to talk? Once in the small town, Smuts emerged and took them into the house, which now doubled as his headquarters. General Smuts took him inside the house and remained closeted with them for some time, after which he came out and walked away into the felt by himself in deep thought. 
the Boers watching knew there was grave news. It was only that evening that Smuts called Reitz over and showed him the dispatch. It was a communication from Lord Kitchener to say that a meeting of the Boers was to be held at Ferenichung to discuss possible peace terms. He was summoned to attend. Remember that Denise Reitz was one of the sons of the Secretary of State for the Transvaal, Reitz Sr. Reitz the Younger was now going to join Smuts on the trip. A safe conduct was enclosed under which he was to proceed through the English lines to Port Nolith, whence he would be taken by sea to Cape Town and there by rail to the Transvaal. What a moment for the young lad who had fought all the major battles in Natal then had survived the long guerrilla campaign riding from the far north of the country through the eastern Transvaal into the western Transvaal down to the Basutaland border through the eastern Cape and he was now believed to be in one of his most successful phases in the desert. His travels had covered thousands of miles, often walking, but he was still alive despite numerous near-death moments. He suddenly realized that the future was more foreboding than he had imagined. The safe conduct for Smuts provided for a secretary, as well as an orderly or batman, as they were sometimes referred. Still barely out of his teens, Rates turned into a young lad excited by the likelihood of traveling by sea and train. I was so delighted at the prospect of going on a journey like this, that for the time being I gave thought to little else. However, around them, hundreds of Boer soldiers stood glumly staring at Smuts and into the distance. These men had fought bravely for almost three years, suffering unbelievable hardships, watching as their friends died or were wounded or taken prisoner. They still believed fervently in their cause against the empire. They were convinced that finally their actions had led to the British giving up. Surely Kitchener and his men were going to agree to terms. Surely the Boers would be restored in their republics. They had no idea what the real situation was. Rates did. It was pitiful to listen to their talk and to see their faces light up when they spoke of having won through at last. And I, for one, had not the heart to disillusion them or to enter the result other than favourable. General Smuts sat in his house composing the messages he needed to send. First was a letter to the Okeep garrison to advise that both sides should refrain from active military operations while the Congress lasted in Ferenichen. He also wanted any relief force and his own commander von Deventer, who was 20 miles away along the Port Nolith railway line, to be aware that a local ceasefire was actually underway. The two officers went onwards to the village of Steinkopf in the west to warn the relief force that had actually arrived from the port to allow Smuts and the two men he'd selected to pass peacefully through the pickets. The next day, small groups of commanders began riding in from distant posts to say goodbye to Smuts. He stood dressed neatly in his uniform beside the courthouse of Concordia as they rode in. It was an emotional moment. Each man sat on his horse, rifle at thigh, while General Smuts addressed them. He briefly told them of the object of his going and asked them to be prepared for disappointment if need be. But there were only cheers and shouts of courage as they pressed from all sides to wish him farewell. It's terrible to think that at this moment most of these men would never see him again. As we'll hear in future podcasts, the hardline members of the commanders would end up preferring exile than to sign a surrender which must surely be on the cards. One of these would be Reitz himself. I stared through the throng to shake hands with such as I could reach, waving to others beyond, and in this way I saw the last of many good friends and companions. 
Reitz would be joined by Jan Smuts' brother-in-law, Kricher, who had ridden with the general for over two years. Reitz left his spare horses, rifle and gear with Nicolas Swart and Edgar Dunker, his best friends. Whom I have not met again, he writes forlornly. A day later they set off towards Port Nolith and reached Van Deventer's commando in the late afternoon. There they spotted the first sign of the relief column which had now encamped below the hills, having moved inland from the sea. For the last time we spent a night around campfires. In the midst of all this emotion, a comedic moment. Before entering the British lines, Smuts had turned to Reitz and said he and Kricher should decide amongst themselves who would be the secretary and who would be the orderly. I chose the orderly, as I thought it meant aide de camp, and left my companion to be the secretary. Hilariously, he just demoted himself to one of the lowest military ranks, a non-combatant. This would have an effect on his travelling experience with the British, who were sticklers for class and rank. They saddled up, said goodbye to Van Deventer and his men, then rode down the valley towards the British lines, with Van Deventer's commando as escorts. It was a tense moment until they reached the base of the hills, where Colonel Collins, the commanding officer, rode up. Here our escort took over our horses, and after singing our commando hymn and firing a farewell volley into the air, they wheeled around and galloped, cheering away towards their own side to the manifest interest of the English soldiers and troopers lined up beside the road. The British had laid on a small impromptu guard of honour of sorts for the gifted guerrilla leader, General Smuts. As the dust settled, Rates was struck by a thought. With them went the last of our free life and all that it had meant to us. By the way, he was writing these words in the Madagascan capital of Antanarivo, where he had landed up after the war. His exploits there would fill another entire book, which he would write later, including fighting alongside Senegalese troops as rebels tried to plunder his wagons while he travelled to the Madagascan coast through the ancient, unique rainforest. But that was much later. Back in the Northern Cape, Smuts, Reitz and Kricher were now standing alongside Colonel Collins, who hailed a cart. They were driven to a large camp alongside the Port Nolith railway line, and here a large guard of honour was drawn up to receive us, behind which crowds of soldiers had gathered to see the Boer emissaries. General Smuts, the will of the wisp, was here. As they clambered off the cart, Reitz realised that he was actually a servant. I now discovered that I had made a mistake, he admitted, and that an orderly was an officer's batman, whereas a secretaryship carried a commissioned rank. Kricher and Smuts were ushered into Colonel Collins' tent, whereas I was led to the servant's mess, while his general and secretary enjoyed a glass of wine and the best meat, Reitz was fed lesser fare. Things went downhill from there, and Kricher had a big grin on his face. An hour later, a train stood ready to take us to Port Nolith. He and General Smuts were ceremoniously ushered into a first-class compartment, while I was put aboard an open cattle truck with the luggage. You have to smile at this poor youngster, Years of roughing it, sleeping on the ground, freezing in a single blanket and shoeless in midwinter, surviving sickness, depravity, and areas squeezed into an open cattle truck. Still, it was another adventure. 
Being in an enemy camp and traveling by rail for the first time in nearly two years was so exciting that it made no difference where I was. Kricher could see Rates from the compartment. Whenever he looked out of the carriage window and saw me sitting in the truck behind, he roared with laughter and so did I, at his becoming an officer and I a servant. They stopped for a meal at a small town on the journey to Port Nolith where Smuts and his secretary were whisked off for a grand luncheon while the son of one of the most famous and senior transfer leaders was forced to sit in the kitchen with the other orderlies. However, things were looking up. At the next halting place I underwent a record promotion, Rates writes in his mischievous style. An officer of the Hossars, by the name of Captain Barclay, who was deputized to accompany Smuts to the coast, asked Smuts who his Batman was. Smuts explained that unlike the British, the Boers had no such rank, and that furthermore social distinctions were absent almost entirely. He also said he'd brought Rates along because he hadn't seen his father in years, and Rates Sr., the Transvaal State Secretary, was probably going to be one of the Boer leaders present at the conference in Vereniging. Captain Barclay phoned Colonel Collins to say that the son of the state secretary was travelling as a servant. Both agreed, this wasn't right. It just wasn't done. Young man, Barclay said to Rates, you are chief of staff to General Smuts. Come along and join us. Barclay obviously had a sense of humour, for he followed that up by telling Rates he'd broken a record, assuring the young man that the promotion from Batman to field rank in the course of one morning was the quickest known in any army. It was early evening when the train puffed into Port Nolith, which Rates called a dreary little seaport, where many troopships laid anchor. One of these troopships was the Lake Erie, and it was already under steam. And even as the train ran into the station, a boat set out to fetch us. This was the end of our long roving. General Smuts was silent. He climbed from the train and stared back up the line towards the way they had come. Each busy with his own thoughts. I do not know what was in the minds of my companions, but perhaps they too were thinking of the long road we had travelled, of the campfires and mountains and plains, and the good men and horses that were dead. It was with heavy hearts that they clambered aboard the boat that was to take them to the ship, every step and every movement reinforcing their surrender. As they stepped aboard the Lake Erie, the ship weighed anchor almost immediately and turned south towards Cape Town. Rates's melancholy mood changed rapidly once the ship got underway. In spite of our mission, the voyage was one of the great pleasures for me. After years of rough fare and hard living, we had luxurious cabins with soft beds to lie on, a steward with coffee in the morning a bath ready prepared and food such as I had almost forgotten the existence of. Rates referred to this moment as like a dream. The Lake Erie was a 446-foot, 1,000-ton steamship built in Glasgow, and its maiden voyage had taken place in 1900 from Liverpool to Cape Town as a Boer War transport. After the war in 1903, the Lake Erie was owned by Canadian Pacific Line, which ferried many Norwegians between Liverpool, Quebec and Montreal as part of the Beaver Line. It was their dream to start a new life in Canada or the United States. Five days after leaving Port Nolith, the Lake Erie arrived in Cape Town, sailing past the notorious Robben Island and rounding Cape Point. But Smuts, Reitz and Kricher 
We're not going to head off to Vereniging by train just yet. It would be a week hence. In the meantime, they boarded the massive Orion-class dreadnought battleship HMS Monarch in Simonstown, where they met Captain Parks, who vied with his officers in an effort to welcome the emissaries. The British, for all their faults, are a generous nation, wrote Rates. And not only on the man of war, but throughout the time that we were amongst them, there was not a word said that could hurt our feelings or offend our pride, although they knew that we were on an errand of defeat. The errand still had a few twists to negotiate, literally. Next week, we'll travel with smuts and hear how some of the Boers in the north were to shock these emissaries. They were so emaciated. But for now, we need to shut the cabin door and turn in, looking forward to the steward's coffee early tomorrow. Thanks to John, whose relatives on his mother's side were the Kroblers, one who ended up as a prisoner of war in Ceylon. And to Peter, I've already sent a reply about the source material. Hope you find it useful. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination, or you can contact me through the website abwarpodcast.com or my Twitter feed at Des Latham. Until next week, goodbye. Een zonder gedal langs die mooi rivierse wal, het zee voor oorlogsdagen bleef. O, breng mij terug naar die Oud-Ransval, daar waar mijn Sari woont. Daar onder in die mil is bij die groen door een boom, daar woont mijn Sari Mare. Daar onder in die mil is bij die groen door een boom.